Brother Dwayne didn't even say hi. So. Come on, man. <laughs> oh, I love you too. Now, I wouldn't get offended anyway. But I, I appreciate that hug. I really do. I hope everybody can hear me. I'm still <clears throat> a little bit uh, weak, but that's okay. Um, looking for a light. That's quite all right. I, uh, I am so glad to be in East River this morning. I thank the Lord for the opportunity to be here, and I thank the Lord for this church. And uh, I tell you, just kind of growing up a little bit here, the Lord did so much. I was kind of in Brother Tucker's situation. And, uh, boy, I tell you what, the Lord had just used this church to do amazing things in my life. And uh, and I really appreciate this church. Uh, you can go all over the country and not find a church as good as this one, I tell you. And I have a good church. Uh, don't get me wrong, I have a good church, Emmanuel Baptist Church in Jacksonville. Um, some of Brother Mark Thrift's family is there doing the music, things like that. And great fellowship, good preaching, wonderful preaching, uh, great pastor. And so I thank the Lord for that. But you never forget, you never forget your friends. And so I thank the Lord for the opportunity to be here and uh, I asked Brother Jared if I had gotten shorter. I tell you, it seems like these guys have gotten so much taller <laughs> since since I was here. <laughs> and some of them older and uglier. <laughs> you know, we're all in that situation. But, uh, no, I thank God for the opportunity, and I thank God for Brother Roger. You have got, uh, now I mean this with all my heart, you've got a fantastic godly man uh, for a pastor and and I love him dearly and uh, I just thank the Lord for him and for what he's done in my life and and watching what he's doing, God's doing through him in this church. I'm excited about what the Lord's going to have back here, all that's coming in the future. I told him the other day that God didn't want all that pressure on him with a bad heart. <laughs> he had to get it right first and so that's not the best way to get your heart right, but, uh, you know, but uh, the Lord's blessing, and I'm thankful for that. I want to take, what have I got, 30 minutes? I want to take 30 minutes and preach the book of John, at least half of it. And then to add on the end of that, I got a revival message. Uh, so we'll, we'll see. Um, hope you don't have anything cooking at home. Uh, no, you know, as I as I didn't know what what to preach, and uh, I wanted to be here for some of the revival, but I, that was kind of impossible. And uh, and we didn't listen to any on the on the uh, phone or you know the internet or anything like that. Uh, and I think some of that was on purpose. 
I didn't want any preconceived thoughts in my mind about what God was doing here this week. I knew God was at work. And I knew that what was going on was needed. And I knew that uh, what uh, Brother Travis and and the others that came, uh, what they did was a tremendous blessing. I knew all that. And Lord willing, I'll look at some of it later online. But I wanted the Lord and... And so I just ask him, give me something that you want me to give them and not something that's preconceived. I have had a real burden lately for lost people. And you'd think, well, that's not something you preach, you know, in a meeting of saved folks that's just had revival and things. And that's where the question comes in. I've been in church all my life. My first memories of a little child was being in church. Switch about that long, all the kids in line and, you know, not acting up, those kinds of things. And uh, just old-fashioned preaching growing up, things like that. And, And through those years, I've seen it. You know, a lot of times people say, well, you're preaching to the choir. But I've known people in the choir that was lost as a goose. Had a good voice. And and you never know uh, who is not real. Um, I was not for a while growing up. Uh, and being growing up in a Christian home does not make you a Christian. That's for sure. Some of the worst people I knew grow up. I think uh, Hitler grew up in a Christian home. He knew the Bible. But uh, that being said, I want to go to the uh, book of John, chapter 2. And all I want to do this morning is quickly take a look at why Jesus came. I couldn't think of any better thing as the Holy Spirit began to speak to me about this message was just the preeminence of Christ, just the the glory of Christ, the um, magnitude of what he did and what he's continuing to do in the life of his people. And so as we look in this book, in chapter 2, what I, what I basically want to do is look at what a man is in the sight of God. We know that a man is precious in the sight of the Lord, that he loved us so much that he gave his own son, as John tells us, his only begotten son, uh, to die for us. We know that. And we know that he came to do the will of his father. We know that he loved us so much that it's not his will that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. We know the Bible says that Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost. We know that, having read the Bible, that the apostles and the preachers uh, preached Christ, that lost people might be saved. And so many times as we uh, deal with people outside the church especially, we find that there are people that have a high thought of themselves. They don't really think about uh, being uh, separate from God. Uh, 
and this world is not probably uh, more corrupt uh, than it was when I was little and years ago when living in the Bible Belt and all that. But the corruption, uh, just like a cancer, it's in there. But like a cancer, the corruption has now exposed itself. And this world, with all the technology and the phones and Internet and all the news media and everything else, corruption has just flooded the scene in, in these latter days. Things that people used to talk about maybe in secret and in the closet, things that were hidden. I remember as a 14-year-old boy, I, I spoke a word uh, that I had heard somebody call me a name and I asked my dad what it was and he threatened to beat me if I ever said it again. And he didn't explain what it was. I didn't even know until I got in the army. It scared me to death. And so, you know, things nowadays are so much different. And I see the corruption so much more evident. But in John, the divinity of Jesus Christ uh, as God, he's all God, we know that, and he's all man. He is the son of God, but he identified himself also as the son of man. And yet he identified with sinners, and from the beginning of his ministry all the way to his death and resurrection and even after, he has been hated by religious people, and not just religious people, but unknowledgeable people. He has been hated. He's hated by the world. And we need to understand that that word does not mean that he, the world dislikes him or just don't want to choose him over somebody else, but they hate him. This is a vicious, vindictive hate that they have for Jesus Christ. You can see it in our government. You can see it in our schools. You can see it uh, everywhere. It's not just a dislike or you can't say that, but it's a hatred for God. And so with that thought in mind, John began and he, and he described what man was. In John chapter 2, we find that it says... That he went to, he was uh, in verse 2, and both Jesus was called and his disciples to a marriage there in Cana. And there are key words in these verses that I'm going to give you. And it says, when they wanted wine, the mother of Jesus saith to them, they have no wine. Now that is a description of the natural man. Wine represents joy. Judges, I think Judges chapter 9, the vine said unto them, Should I leave my wine which cheereth God and man? So wine in the Bible represents joy, and the only one that can give true joy is Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit. Knowing the Lord, only you get joy by knowing the Lord. And so Mary said, they have no joy. Men have no joy, and that's one reason why the world's in the shape it's in. Even Christians don't understand 
the fullness of the joy of Christ. If it did, we'd have a lot of not just happier, but more joyful Christians. Little things, as we spoke about in Sunday school this morning, just wouldn't mount to a hill of beans. Little things, like a, a friend of mine before he died, he used to tell me, he said, just let it run off like water on a duck's back. Don't let it bother you. You know? And, and people just don't understand sometimes the joy that comes. But a lost man, a natural man, has no joy. The happiness that they have is conditional on their circumstances. It can change from one minute to the next, but they have no enduring internal joy of the Lord. And the other thing that, that he builds here in these verses is over in chapter 4. If you'll look over in chapter 4. Another thing, John doesn't go into all the other miracles that the other three books, the other Gospels, talk about. The miracles that he talks about are these seven. Seven is the number of, you know, perfection. But the six miracles that do not represent something about Christ, six represents man. But in John chapter 4, we find in verse 46, So Jesus came again unto Cana of Galilee, where he made the water wine. Isn't that something? Came back there. And there was a certain nobleman, listen to this, whose son was sick. The Bible tells us that those that are about Christ, we're, we're sick in sin. There's a sickness unto death, and it's called sin. Adam was healthy one day, but he sinned against the Lord, and that sickness fell upon all men because all men have sinned. So the sin sickness is, is what is the reality of the natural man. He's not only has no joy, but he's sick. He's sick in his soul. His thoughts, the intents of his heart, uh, even the plowing of the ungodly is, is sin, the Bible talks about. No wonder the righteousness, uh, as the Bible says, the, our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. Because of sin, because of the sickness of sin that drives us, and one day that sickness will take us to a grave and eternal death. So not only is a man without joy, but he's sick. Another one is in over there in uh, uh, chapter 5, it says in verse... Five, and a certain man was there which had an infirmity thirty and eight years. When Jesus saw him lie, and knew that he had been that way, been now a long time. In that case, he said unto him, "Wilt thou be made whole?" Now you notice the word "whole." It's not the word "Will you be made well?" You want me to cure your infirmity? He said, "Will you be made whole?" A whole man is one that's not only well physically, but spiritually. He's a whole, complete person. And so he said, will you be made whole? Look at what the man says. The impotent man answered him, 
Sir, I have no man. I have no man. The natural man is impotent. He has no strength of his own to get to a place that can cure him. He has nobody that can take him. He has no strength of his own. Even his willpower cannot muster enough strength to get him to that place. But Jesus said, do you want to be raised up? You want to be made whole? Only the Lord Jesus Christ has the strength and the power to raise up a man that is impotent without any strength of his own. I was lost. I had no way to get to Christ by myself. I had nobody that I knew of that could get me to Christ to be saved. That don't mean somebody witnessing to you and things, but that means the power of another individual to get you to that place where you're saved. Nobody can save you but Christ. And so we find that not only is the natural man uh, without any joy and he's sick unto death, but he's impotent and has no strength whatsoever to help himself. A lot of people think, well, you know, I'll get saved whenever I feel like it. No, I don't think so. And then we find that over in chapter 6 and verse 5, Chapter 6 and verse 5, it says, When Jesus then lifted up his eyes and saw a great company come unto him, he saith unto Philip, Whence shall we buy bread that these may eat? And this he said to prove him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred penny worth of bread is not sufficient for them, that every one of them may eat take a little you see we're in a place where we uh, have no strength these people had followed Christ they had listened to his preaching but Jesus wanted to show them they had a deeper need and that deeper need was that they need bread they need strength and his disciple says even what we can muster and pay can't buy enough that they can even get a little. You realize you can't buy salvation? You can't buy what it takes to get you to salvation? You don't have anything to give you nourishment to help you get to salvation. You don't get any nourishment to help you get to salvation. It's like one minute you're you're lost, the next minute you're saved. There's no working towards it. There's no working for it. There's no building up strength to get there. There's no getting cured to get there. And there's no being happy enough to get there. Jesus showed them these people, they were without strength. He's incapable of feeding himself. You can't even read the Bible as a lost man and feed yourself. It's all insufficient. We're destitute of strength and food. And then we find in chapter 6, verse 18, now Jesus had, uh, in verse 17, it said, And entered into a ship and went over the sea toward Capernaum, and it was now dark, and Jesus was not come to them. 
And the sea arose by reason of a great wind that blew. So when they had rowed about five and twenty or thirty furlongs, they see Jesus walking on the sea. And drawing nigh unto the ship, they were afraid. But he said unto them, It is I, be not afraid. The other thing is, this miracle was the fact that he walked on water. And he walked on water because he wanted them to understand that they were in a dangerous place. Without him, there was no hope of them getting to the other side. This storm that they were in was going to drown them. And Jesus came to them. And a lost man, a natural man, is in a dangerous place. He's like being held over hell by a thread. And that thread could break any minute. Nobody knows the day or the hour that Christ is going to come. Nobody knows the day or the hour of their death. And they're hanging over hell. No strength to help themselves. I wouldn't have any joy when I found out I'm hanging over hell. They have no strength. They have no way to get out of that position. They're in a dangerous place. And unless Jesus comes, they're going to die and go into that hell. And Jesus wanted mankind, he wanted his disciples to see the, the aspects, you might say, of the natural man. They're going to be preaching and giving their life for Christ one day. And he wanted them to fully understand what it meant to see a lost man as a lost man. And when we really begin to see lost people as lost people, sick and without strength and unable to help themselves and in a dangerous place, then we might be more apt to tell them about the one that can save them. The Bible says, He that goeth forth weeping, bearing precious seed, shall doubtless come again rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. He's not talking about stocks of wheat. You don't weep over stocks of wheat. When we get to the place where we see mankind the way mankind is seen by God, and the Holy Spirit puts that thought in our heart and our mind, and we begin to weep over those that we know are lost and dying, then it will make a difference in our life. They won't be just somebody we work with or lives down the street. Some doctor. And so we find that they were in a dangerous place. Then in chapter 9, verse 1. Chapter 9, verse 1. And as Jesus passed by, he saw a man which was blind from his birth. You can read the rest of it later. But that's the way a lost man is. He's blind from his birth. He cannot see. Not only can he not see afar off, he can't see. I remember one time up in uh, Tennessee, I believe it was, we went into the lost cave. The Lost Sea, they called it. 
And you walk into an old cave that was used during the Civil War, and they had, they had a little skinny passage. And they turned the lights on back there where you could see, and you had to walk individually through this skinny little passage. And as you walked, if you're tall enough, you could see over this stone wall there that had not been chipped away, there was water. And you walked through that passage and went on up, and there was a, a, a boat dock there. And they put you in these glass-bottom boats and pushed you away from the shore. Now, they turned the lights on up on the top in the dome of this cave, and the guide said, you see that great big triangle shape up there that's missing, that big stone? Everybody said, yeah. He said, now look, and they turned the lights on underwater, and you can see that big stone under there. And it was nice, you know, being there. The fish were about this big. You could see through them, you know. They were, because they had no light under there for all those years. And he said, now put your hand in front of your face. So everybody put their hand in front of the face, and they turned all the lights out. You could feel the darkness. And the longer the lights were out, the scareder people got. You couldn't tell where you were. And all you could hear was people starting to kind of, you know, get edgy and want the lights. And But you could move your hand like that. You could not see anything. And I had 20-20 vision, but I was totally blind I remember one time I got hit in the head and did a flip and a steel bar hit me across the head and for three or so days I was blind face all bruised and swollen and that was scary but a natural man he may be able to see the beauty of the creation but he's blind in his spirit and his soul. He's blind. He don't see Christ. He don't really see the real beauty of things. He don't understand. And that's what Jesus was talking about. He tells us here in the book of John that that's the way sinners are, blind. And then we find that in chapter 11, verse 1, Now, a certain man was sick, named Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary and her sister Martha. And it was that Mary which anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Therefore his sister sent unto him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom thou lovest is sick. You notice she didn't say, our brother Lazarus is sick. But she said, the Holy Spirit had her say, he whom thou lovest is sick. Makes me think of how much the Lord loves sick, dying people. Lost people. Jesus said, this sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God that the Son of Man might be glorified. Then... You go on down, and we find that 
He talked to his disciples about it. And finally, in verse 14, then Jesus said unto them plainly, Lazarus is dead. Lazarus is dead. That was the sixth thing that Jesus wanted, or the seventh thing that Jesus wanted his disciples to understand. Man's not only, you know, no joy and sick and without strength, cannot nourish himself, he's blind, all those things, and he's in a dangerous place. But man is dead. The natural man is dead. And that's what he wanted us, I believe, to see, and he wanted his disciples to see. Lazarus was a good friend. There were other Lazarus in the Bible, one other one. And of course, there's a contrast between those two, as you can read and, and find out. But Lazarus represents the totality of the condition of man. Yes, we have no joy, we're sick, impotent, cannot strengthen ourselves in a place of impending destruction, we're blind, but most of all, we're dead. I thought about that death and what that death meant to the Lord Jesus Christ when he was on the cross. It was for these dead people that he was dying. And Jesus said in, in uh, Psalm 22, 6, as he was dying on the cross, the Bible tells us that he said, but I am a worm and not a man. The sin of our sickness, our death, our sin, caused Jesus Christ to look at himself and see a worm. Can you imagine the beautiful, glorious Jesus, our Lord, seeing himself as a worm? Well, that's because of our sin. He became sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God through him. And so we find that he wanted them to see that. And uh, he also wanted us to see something glorious. When he told them that they were going to go and they went to the grave, they went there and Mary and Martha met him and all those things happened. I, I was I was reading this the other day and I'm not a very uh, excitable kind of person, you know. A lot of people jump for joy when they get really excited, and I just kind of, ooh, you know, that kind of thing and, and stuff. But I read this, what Jesus did for this dead man, and I put myself in the place as I was reading this. I put myself, when I was lost, in that place. And when Jesus went to the grave and he said these three words Lazarus come forth I just burst out because that's what he did to me on a pew one day that's what the Holy Spirit does to a man that's dead that hears the gospel, that pays attention to the wooing and the pulling of the Holy Spirit, 
that can see himself as God sees him. And the Holy Spirit during that preaching and during that service, he calls their name and he says, come forth. It's your turn. Now is the day of salvation. Now is the accepted hour. Come forth. And boy, I tell you what, I don't even remember getting down there. I wondered sometimes how how did Lazarus get out of there? They roll the stone away, but he's all wrapped up. How did he get down there? I feel like sometimes I got down there the same way. I must have floated because I don't remember walking the aisle. I just remember being on my face before God and begging him to save me. And then thanking him for doing so. And Lazarus, uh, he came forth. He came forth. And then after that, Lazarus was revived. Lazarus was revived. Not only was Lazarus revived, but Mary and Martha were revived. The joy that they had in knowing Christ was still there. But they were grieving over the loss of their brother. When they saw him come back to them, they were revived in their spirit. They were revived in their hearts. The first thing they did was want to go somewhere and eat. (laughs) I tell you what, Christians know how to celebrate revival. Yeah, there had been others raised from the dead. The Bible talks about the son of Nain. Uh, you know, the, I mean, in name, the son of the widow, he was being carried to the graveyard. He was dead, but he never got buried. He met Jesus on the way. He never got buried. We we think of the Jairus's daughter. She had just died. They came and told Jairus, "Don't worry about it now. She's dead." Jesus went in, put them all away, and there she was. First thing she did was eat. <laughs> Give her something to strengthen her. But Lazarus was dead. Not only was he dead, but he had been dead four days and his body had already started corrupting. His own sister said, he stinks. I mean, he stinks. That don't matter to Jesus. We all stunk. Every one of us. And if you're lost today... You stink. You're rotting in your sin. And Jesus Christ wants to save you and make you beautiful. Make you smell good. Bless your heart. God comes to where we are. And he speaks life to us when he says come forth. We hear the gospel. The Holy Spirit says that to us. And we can see in this story three types of revival, and I'll be through. First of all, in Psalm 85, 6, he says, Wilt thou not revive us again? And that means to recover or repair or restore or invigorate our life. Now, that's what this week was to be for was to recover things that maybe through irresponsibility, just not taking the time, not paying attention, 
do you know, just whatever, you get kind of lackadaisical on the Lord, and you need revived. And that's what these meetings are for, is to kind of, I remember when, when I was in the Army and I'd have an asthma attack, they'd strap me down and inject me with, uh, what do you put in a horse? You know, uh, adrenaline. I don't know if you've ever had an adrenaline injection or not, but that will vigorate you, invigorate you. They had to strap me down because I just, all this kind of stuff. But that will really invigorate you, and that's what a revival is supposed to be for. It's to send you out with new encouragement, new desire, new hopes, and new plans. And, boy, just mm, got a full tank of gas. I'm ready to go. And that's what revival is for. But there's another kind of revival, and sometimes it's, uh, it, it's a little bit different. In Ezra chapter 9, I think it is, he says about revival that it is an encouragement after the confession of sin while you're still in bondage. You know, that's a strange thing. They have, uh, we have a man, you probably know him, uh, Brother George Wade, been a missionary to the prisons for years, and he's in our church, and every Sunday almost he goes to the prison. And that's what he does. He preaches to those that are saved to try to encourage them in their bondage. Because they know that this is uh, sometimes permanent, sometimes not permanent, but they're in bondage. They don't have the freedom to go and come as, as we do and things like that on the outside. And so men in that situation that are saved, they still need to be soul winners. They still need to grow in, in the things of the Lord. They still need to love God more and, and serve God more, just like other people. And so their, their freedom is limited, but their joy doesn't have to be. And their ability to serve God doesn't have to be. Not in prison. And then there's... Um, Another one that means to live again after having experienced physical death. Um, there are people in the Bible. One man in a battle was thrown into a, a sepulcher where Elisha's bones were, and he came back alive. That was a miracle. Uh, the people, you know, that we see in the Bible that were dead came back alive. But this one here is specifically talking about someone like Lazarus and also Jesus Christ. Let me read you a verse. How much time do I have, brother? Romans chapter 14. And verse 9, I should just quote it, but I want to read it to you. And it says, now, having described the natural man, think of that as we read this verse. Think of the natural man, the dead man, the corrupt man, the sick man, the blind man. And it says, for this cause, or for to this end, Christ both died 
and rose and revived, that he might be Lord both of the dead and the living. Now, Jesus Christ shows us the greatest example of revival, and that is that he gained his physical life back. He took it back. He said, no man take it from me. I lay it down on myself, and I'll take it up again. And he had the power to do that, but you don't. Nobody does but him. And so that is the greatest sign of revival. And um, there's some verses in First Peter. The Bible tells us to, to beware. Uh, and the Bible tells us in Second uh, Corinthians to be active. These are things that we need to be aware of once revival comes to our life. Beware, because when you step outside the confines of this church and the hearing of the good music and the good preaching and go back to what you call normal living, the devil wants to take everything away that God gave you this week. He wants to try to pull you down He'll put snares in your path. He'll do things, or he'll try to do things to take away what God's given you this week and discourage you from doing the things that you may have told God you'd you'd like to do for him this week. And so beware, first of all. He is as, he's not a roaring lion, but he's as a roaring lion. There is another lion that can defeat that one. Remember, but he's as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And he wants you desperately. Not only that, but the Bible tells us to be active. Do the things that God told you to do. You know, if God calls you to preach, do everything you can to get out there and preach. I remember when I got saved, my first, or when I got called to preach, my first message somewhere between 5 and 11 minutes, and I had a big old white Bible. I was scared to death. I don't even know what I said. But my pastor got me out and, and, and started preaching me. You might say, he used to say, you, I'm going to preach him this week or something. And it got to where, you know, it took me down to New Orleans on Canal Street and stood me right there, traffic going both ways, people doing this, and I'm up there preaching and he's up there preaching. The other preacher's up there preaching. I almost won a priest to the Lord. He was real close. He had a lot of questions. But do what you say. Do what God called you to do. Don't waste time on it. Um, those things that easily beset you, as we see in the book of Hebrews... Uh, Lay those things aside. Don't let them get a hold of you. And then be blessed. Look to yourselves that we lose not those things which we have wrought, but that we receive a full reward. God wants to reward us. He wants to reward this church for the things that took place this week. And I believe he has. Now he that planteth, And that watereth are one, and every man shall receive his own reward according to his own labor. God spoke to you this week. 
Don't look to somebody else to do what he wants you to do. If nobody else does it, you do what God wants you to do. And then the last one, Ephesians, be one, endeavoring, endeavoring to keep the unity. Now, these are things, and Lord willing, I'll pick up there tonight. And I just pray that this revival, and I know it has, I believe it has, uh, has done something special in your life this week. Don't lose it. Don't lose it. You know, people make New Year's resolutions. My New Year's resolution has always been don't make a resolution because I'm going to break it. I have lost probably 3,000 pounds making resolutions here, and I've lost zero pounds doing it. I mean, you know, just, but when it comes to the work of the Lord, you've got the power of the Holy Spirit. You've got the joy of the Lord. You've been healed. You're not weak anymore in the power of the Holy Spirit. You're not in a dangerous place. You're on your way to heaven. You're in a wonderful place. The Lord came back today. Wow. You wouldn't have to go to work tomorrow. I mean, it'd be fantastic. What better place could you be? You're not blind. You see clearly now those things that you used to not have any clue about and couldn't understand. And you see now what the Lord's doing in your life and in the church and in this world. Be comforted in the fact that God loves you dearly. God loves you dearly. And he wants to bless your life. Do what he asks you to do. Father, I thank you for your word. And Father, I thank you for helping me, Lord, and speaking to my heart through these things. I pray that you'll take these words and bless your people. I know your word will not uh, return to you void. God, I pray that you'll give us obedient hearts and give us faith. Thank you for your goodness, we ask in Jesus' name. Let's all stand.